Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello and welcome. My name is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and you are on Visual Workplace Radio. I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. And in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living dynamic landscape of work through visual devices, how to install the language of our current level of operational excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be, or as we know we will be. When we make that level of operational detail concrete and specific through visual devices, visual mini-systems, we can literally see how we think. We see the physical devices. And that gives us a platform for predicting how that thinking will function, how we will perform. We've captured it. That's a visual workplace. That's a workplace that speaks embedded performance. And we bother because of the extraordinary bottom line improvements. Improved safety, improved quality, improved delivery time, shrinking costs, and because of the splendid cultural alignment that is the result of connecting the organization through visual devices, through a language that is the company's own, a language that everyone understands, and that is physically available, present, manifest in the workplace itself. The result is a spirited and engaged workforce. It is also a thinking workforce, an inventive workforce, a workforce that is tracking down information deficits, a major but hidden form of waste. The information deficits are by definition missing. They're deficits. They're missing answers. And yet this enemy is ferocious and impacts all forms of our performance. It is what causes accidents. It is what impacts our quality negatively, creating defects and rework and mistakes and mix-ups. It is what keeps us from meeting our delivery time, whether we work in an office or we work on the manufacturing floor. So we get this great cultural alignment because we're connected visually, because we're speaking a common language, and that allows us to enjoy ourselves at work. Another way of saying enjoy ourselves is to flow. We flow at work. The obstructions that are invisible obstructions have been eliminated through our own visual thinking. And the enterprise, the enterprise becomes a workplace that speaks. How fun is that? So welcome, welcome, welcome. I want to remind you that we are at at visualworkplace.com. You can find everything on our website. You can find our products and our services and lots of free articles and these podcasts ready for you to download. And you can get in touch with us at radio at visualworkplace.com. That's an email, radio at visualworkplace.com or from our website through contact at visualworkplace.com. 
If the letter is, if the email, if your email is specifically for me, just put Gwendolyn somewhere in the title or up front at the top of the email, and it will find my way to, it will find its way to me, and I will answer it, I promise. I always answer those emails. And so we continue. We continue with our discussion, if you remember, a slight detour, a discussion about becoming a brilliant visual workplace trainer and what that means and what the parts of that are. Becoming a trainer who can not only teach people about visuality but actually support the conversion of a traditional workplace into a workplace that speaks. And that's a particular skill. It isn't a gift. It is a skill. It has elements to it. I'm going to go through two chunks of those elements today. Last week I told you it was. it's really important if you're going to be a visual workplace trainer that you become very interested and curious about your world, that you notice the visuality in community places, that you make connections between what that looks like at work or why it isn't at work, but that you you really wake up to the way the world is visual because we are visual beings and not the other way around. And you have conversations at your dining room table and maybe you teach Sunday school and you have a little, uh, a little course, a little uh, snippet of visuality if you're teaching children or if you're teaching adults and you begin to integrate that into your consciousness and into your discovery process. It's very important that you get that feeling, that interest, that appetite. Training visuality is different from training simply topics. This is a discovery process, and what you are building is a workforce of visual thinkers. It is a system of thinking, and you must adopt that system yourself. That is, in addition to the methodology, you simply become aware of how visuality governs our day and governs our community and really makes things flow. As soon as we get back to flowing again, I hope it's really soon. Please stay healthy. All right. So today I'm going to talk about two chunks. I may not be able to uh, finish the second one, but we'll get pretty close. The first chunk is simply setting up the physical space. The second chunk is nine principles of an effective visual workplace training, principles of effective training, and they're widely applicable, I think, to most training settings. And some of these elements, the first set of elements, they're going to be seven elements, uh, seven elements to keep in mind about the physical space. And I'll go through those rather quickly, but they're important. Do not underestimate them. You'll see. It's about choosing a room that is large enough. Make sure the room that you select. So these are the seven, okay? Mm, Let me see if I've made a mistake. Ah, I beg your pardon. There are eight. There are eight. Eight elements. Element one, the training room must be large enough. When given a choice, make sure that the room you select is spacious, provides a sense of spaciousness. 
said another way, avoid a cramped and crowded room. The training room must be large enough to hold people and make sure those ceilings are high enough as well. Even if the room is large in footprint, if it's if it has a ceiling that's as low as eight feet, it will feel cramped. Okay, second one, and it goes hand in hand with the first. Get rid of the clutter. This will give you a sense of greater space because there will be greater space. Make sure the room contains only the things you require for that training event. I'm talking about moving out the extra tables, moving out the unused chairs, no stacks of chairs, no old computers, no stray desks. All of this not only works against effective learning and an effective learning environment, but it works against the very principles and practices of work that makes sense. So remove the clutter, even if you have to bring the clutter back at the end of the session. It's really important. Third, make sure you have the right equipment and you know the list. You have a computer, you have a good LCD projector, Make sure that it has a minimum of 3,200 lumens. The projector must be bright and clear with excellent color balance. You're going to be spending a lot of time entering into visual devices that are on the screen. You're really going to study those visual devices and understand how they work and why they work and how to use them and how to use them differently. So what is happening visually is extremely important. That screen and the screen itself, whether it's built-in or a pedestal, best thing is to have a white screen and smooth. There have been times when I've been training at someone else's company and I'll walk in and the screen is supposed to be the wall. Well, it works out if the wall is smooth, no texture, and white or very, very light. But even a beige wall, a light beige wall, will dim the vibrancy of the pictures, and it makes a difference. I have, from time to time, used a white sheet. We have dug out the iron. We have ironed the darn thing. We have found a way to iron iron the sheet so that the wrinkles are out, and we have tacked it tautly on a wall or with masking tape. We made a lot of stuff up, but it's important. It's important. I remember I did that at a military depot. Tobiana, yeah, there wasn't a screen in the room. I don't know what they were thinking of. But anyway, we we punted and we did okay. Okay, and then there's a table for your supplies. And I like to use a narrow table up front to put my computer. I like my laptop nearby because something will come up and maybe somebody will mention a particular situation and I'll have exactly the right mini system uh, in my computer. I want to be able to access it at will. Narrow, the narrow table, not going horizontally from me as a kind of block, but as narrow as possible and positioned vertically. So there's a nice, again, there's a nice flow. Flip charts, I use two of them. They're always sturdy. I always avoid the A-frames because they wiggle when I write and sometimes they just fall over. And, of course, I have plenty of paper and fresh dark markers, blunt-ended markers. Red is impossible to see. It is the least visible color that you can use. Don't use it. Hide it. Maybe you'll have a red or an orange marker on your table tucked away. But don't bring it near your flip chart if you want other people to come up and do anything 
uh, right on the flip chart because they'll grab the red marker thinking that people will see it better. They see, in fact, it is the least visible. Blunt-ended, not bullet-pointed. Blunt-ended because so the letters are thick, the lines are thick. And I never use 3M chart pads that are sticky for the flip charts up front because they're too sticky and I can't get them to flip over. They just get stuck in themselves. So these are just these are just the mechanics, but they're important. Here's it. So that's that's number three. Have the right equipment. Number four, the training room has to have good air. We need air that is saturated, 98% saturated with oxygen. In most closed rooms at home, windows shut, no air conditioning, the saturation point hovers around 88%. In most factories where there are airborne coolants and solvents as well as dust, saturation levels are usually at or below 70%. Okay, so fresh air, important. If the room has windows, open them during the breaks. It may be chilly for a moment. Close them when the break is over. Keep the room filled with fresh air as much as possible. So important. People will fall asleep. There'll be no learning. And you'll fall asleep too. I have often felt the deadliness of dead air. And I just want to lie down under a table and go to sleep with everybody else. Okay, it's too much work. You can't learn if you can't breathe. (laughs) That's the principle. So, uh, element number five, the training room must be quiet. Noise and sound are not the same thing. Noise is any sound that does not originate in the training room. That's what I call it. Noise is any sound that does not originate in the training room as part of the instruction or in response to it. When the training room is noisy, people will strain to hear you, and if you're using our online module, then the module, and they will strain to hear themselves, and the training suffers. And you know what else will suffer as a result? Your whole deployment will suffer. Yes, it's that important. And that includes, as noise, any kind of loudspeaker announcements, machine noise, the running of the overhead air conditioner or the heater, enunciator bells, sirens, alarms, or if you're close to the street, street traffic, noise pollution. It will distract your participant and it will exhaust them, okay? Needless to say, part of the room being quiet is also turn off all PDAs, all beepers, and all cell phones, of course. (laughs) Should I also say good luck on that? But of course. And in fact, it hopefully it's a norm in your company so people are used to it and you're not and you don't look like the heavy. Okay, element six, the training room must be dark enough. This is related to the pictures again. This is related to the many, many visual solutions in my online um, online version of work that makes sense. There are over 900 visual solutions. We study them. We look at them. They inspire us. They puzzle us. They attract us. They inform us. They're really important. So the room has to be dark enough for you to get the contrast. I often go into a training room that's dominated by windows with no blinds or with inadequate blinds. And you know what we do? We go out into the into the warehouse and we find some big cardboard boxes and we put them in place with tape or 
black plastic garbage bags. Again, with tape, we cover the windows. We take them down when it's over, but the room must be dark. And that includes masking or dousing or removing the lights that's directly over the screen. Your windows can be dark and you'll have this light on the screen and you'll still have a faded image. Okay, so you take care of that in, as you get your room ready for the training. And if you train there repeatedly, just get into the routine. It'll take you less and less time each time. And of course, you put the room back to where it was before, unless somebody please asks you to please keep it that way because it's better for them too. Okay. Element seven is the layout of the room itself. It has to be workable. This can exercise a considerable influence over your training success. Don't simply accept the layout that you find waiting when you walk into the room. It needs to accommodate your requirements. And I've got some uh, specific guidelines on what I mean by requirements. Okay, here we go. Here are the conditions that I look for in a layout. I must be able to see everyone. From where I'm standing, prancing around in the front, I must be able to see everyone. I must, the instructor, be able to circulate, to move amongst participants, to move closer, to move away. Maybe I'm coaching. Maybe I'm trying to get through to a table that has a question. They want me to look at something. Work that makes sense training is very, very active. There's so many exercises that take place directly on the table where people are sitting. More about that in a moment. I have to be able to circulate. And I often have trainers who are in training following me on top of it. More about them in a moment. Third, so I said, number one, I must be able to see everyone. And I say, number three, everyone must be able to see me. And everyone must be able to see each other. That's four. They must be able to see me, three. They must be able to see each other, four. Five, I want people to sit at tables so that they can easily interact at all costs. I I will do anything to keep the area from not being in a theater layout with everybody facing forward on a narrow table with people to the left of them and to the right of them and nobody within their line of sight except the front of the room. This is unworkable for the kind of team building and team thinking that goes on in any training and in particular In work that makes sense, there's a lot of thinking that is very particular. A lot of exercises that are not just filling out a blank, but really thinking and thinking of alternatives and thinking of options and thinking of why and thinking of how. Okay, so it's a very active thinking process. So the layout that I like that meets those characteristics of people being able to see me, me seeing them, they seeing each other, they're still being flow and they're still sitting at small islands or small tables is a crescent shape. That means the tables where people sit are arranged in a semicircle 
with the narrow end facing the front of the room. So it sort of looks like rays. Okay, the, the, the tables are vertical to the front of the room. Sometimes I'll put a horizontal table in the back where there's an overflow and then people just sit around it on three of those sides. But it's not ideal for flow. Okay, so it's crescent shape. People sit on three sides. They sit at the far end facing me. <laughs> they sit on both sides facing each other and easy to shift in their position to see me. And nobody sits at the fourth end because their back would be to me or their back would be to their colleagues. And that doesn't really work that well for interaction. Okay. I like to see about five people at the table, never more than seven. And if we have to, we'll do four. If, if the teams formulate into four people, that's fine. Okay. So don't even think about training without the use of tables with people lined up row upon row in their chairs with their booklets and their pens and their post-its on their knees. Don't even think about it. Okay. And number eight, the one that I forgot, number eight is refreshments. If at all possible, have refreshments and locate them inside the room so people can just get up and get what they need at will. You put the you put water at the tables if you possibly can, with cups and glasses, of course. And you avoid high sugar foods. You avoid chocolate. Nobody. I'm a really good trainer, but not even this good trainer can compete against chocolate. I'm talking about cheese, popcorn, fresh fruit, some cut fresh vegetables, healthy food, hummus, some chips to dip them with, but healthy food. We want people to have their full strength and their full attention. So we're really feeding their body healthy food. Okay? So those are the eight elements that I look for and I seek and I get in a training room. We send a setup sheet ahead to our clients. We go over that sheet. We make sure... The tick marks are in place and that when I show up on site, 90% of the work is already done. It's still always a scramble. We always find something that's missing, but usually we can punt and make up the difference without sacrificing the quality of the training. It's that important. All right. So those are the eight elements for a good training space. Now I want to move to the nine principles of effective training. Nine principles. Nine principles. Let's go through them. These are the principles that we train when we train trainers. So they are, for me, quite important. Principle one, to inspire first, then inform. Everyone has come across great trainers. And what is it that makes them great? Great teachers, great trainers inspire us to learn And then they teach us. And that's what you must do. You must inspire first and then inform. Your job is to complete three tasks as a trainer. First, you inspire people to learn. Second, you teach them content, in this case, the work that makes sense process. And third, you support or coach people in their thinking so they can apply their new learning in their own work areas. The difference between teaching and coaching is teaching is imparting new knowledge 
and coaching is supporting people while they apply that new knowledge. That's what we call coaching. Okay? Your job is to create a workforce of visual thinkers, beginning with the people in your classroom. That means that you have to help them gain the knowledge and the skill and the confidence. Okay? And then they will think and they will implement. That's principle one. Principle two, start small. We urge you, when you're training, to choose a small group to train during your first round. Eight to 12 people. Eight minimum, 12 maximum, unless you're a highly experienced trainer, and I have seen them. This doesn't include other people in the room who will be supervisors or observers or trainers in training. These are participants, okay? The reason why we want to start small, we urge you to start start small, is because you have to give yourself space to make mistakes, to make missteps, to be ready for that, and to not feel the pressure of too much to do, too many people to respond to. So the first cycle of training we call the A cycle, and you've heard me say this before. You can think of yourself as first-time parents. The new baby comes home, there's a lot to learn, and mistakes will be made, and you learn. The parents learn. And when the second baby comes, they already have some skill and some confidence. Of course, the first kid may need to go to therapy by the time he or she is 14, but the second kid, it's more, more of a success. You make mistakes, but usually not the same ones. And by the third kid, you've got it down pad and you decide to have seven more because you're doing such a great job. It's like that when you train work that makes sense for the first time. You're going to learn a lot from your first group and you're going to parlay that over to your second group. You're going to get better. And by the third group, you're going to look like a champion. Okay? So we talked about the laminated map The decision about who gets, who specifically, which areas get trained is up to your ranking side executive and the supervisors. They come to that discussion, but you have to give them the guidelines. Hey, I'm looking for 12 people to begin with. So if you have triple shifts, well, this is bringing me to principle three, everybody gets trained, you may only be able to do two areas, maybe even only one. So let's go to principle three. Principle two is start small, growth is faster and better, deeper as a result, your growth. The first training cycle is for you. You are a trainer learning to train. Work that makes sense as a methodology. Principle three, everyone gets trained. It is important for everyone to get trained no matter what shift, no matter their interest, no matter anything. I am not in favor of representative training. Representative training means that only a few people from each area are sent to the training. The rest remain behind. We say instead everyone gets trained in as close to the same time frame as possible. That means, if possible, within the same week. It can be five days, six days, but soon Everyone is on the same page. Everyone has gone through the same training. I know that training three shifts is a challenge. And I will tell you, it is worth it. 
Sometimes I train them because either the operators, which is what happened in Mexico, or management, which often happens, says we're going to do three, the three shifts at once. And then there are accommodations made for the sleep cycle, keep everybody safe in terms of sleep and restfulness. Okay, but we never, ever trained a partial group. We don't do it. You may do it when we're not around, but we, we can't participate in that. It's against our values. We believe in eye-driven visuality. We know that thinking is an eye-driven activity. We teach everyone. And we have also found that representative training creates the impression, the impression of an elite, whether it's intended or not, and it's never intended. The small group, when you do representative training that gets trained, is often seen as either favored by management or knowing more or thinking that they know more than the people who stay behind and keep operations going. So there can be a lot of resentment. And I've spoken to a number of operators and value-add associates who have been sent to representative training. They got to go. They got the air conditioning. They got the trees. They got the learning. And they're not too happy about it. They don't want to feel special. They want to feel connected to their colleagues, to the people they work with, and they're put into an untenable position. It looks like you're favoring the people who work well in a group, and that kind of makes sense, but it doesn't create, it doesn't grow a work culture. You remember recently, I think I said this in the last, in our last show, is the emblem of work that makes sense, and I think of OPEX as well, should be, could be, is we grow leaders. We grow leaders. We don't get to say in advance who the leader will be. We don't get to stare into our crystal ball. We don't get to predict, and we don't want to. We want everyone to come up. We want everyone to come up. This is the values of training. Not the value of training, but the values that govern training. In this day, in this age, we make the playing field flat. We invite everyone. And they find not only their level, they excel. So many stories. I've told you so many stories already of people who have just completely surprised and impressed and inspired me because of their response when they're given a chance to discover and to learn and to express and to deploy. So you don't want that kind of misunderstanding and resentment on either side. It's not a great way to launch a new improvement initiative. The journey is basically over before it's begun. You want to have a cultural transformation, and you're working against it if you don't train everyone. Okay? doesn't have to be simultaneous, but as close to simultaneous as you can get. Okay? You know, there's overtime. If that's not an option, then there can be overlapping shifts. There's lots of ways to work through that. If you want to ask me about that specifically, send me an email at radio at visualworkplace.com and I'll map some out for you. Okay. Um, There's something else I wanted to say about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Aha. Okay, it's principle four. And that's about making the training room safe. For learning to happen, you have to make the training room safe. Yes, a physical place that is safe, but also psychologically safe. So physical safety is fairly easy to come by in a training room setting. It's some of the things we talked about at the beginning of the show, a good physical environment for learning. Making the training room safe psychologically is a bit of a shift in orientation. For starters, you have to make it safe for both the people who are usually easy to be around and those who you may give a wider berth to. People who give other people, you and maybe everybody else, a bit of a hard time. People like Charlie. I spoke of Charlie and his table. I can name names. Charlie is the kind of icon. By hard time, it usually means that that person doesn't feel safe psychologically to begin with. They feel under threat. So you're making it safe for people who already feel a bit jittery about a training situation. But you're making it safe for everyone else as well. This is a part of demonstrating respect Respect for the individual. And by the way, the Japanese translation of respect for the individual, which I can't say in Japanese, but you've heard it, respect for the individual is originating from the Toyota system and some of the other great Japanese companies, is, is, incorrectly, is incorrectly translated by saying respect for the individual. It's actually respect for humanity, respect for all individuals. Respect for us. Respect for all of us, all of the eyes. An important part of creating psychological safety is smoothing out the playing field so everybody feels right and feels the right to be in the room. They feel on equal footing. Creating that feeling, trainers, is your job. It's called creating parity. And you need to take concrete steps to ensure this. For example, to ensure everyone has a chance to be heard. For example, to ensure that everyone tastes some measure of success in your training room. I used to say it when I was teaching 5S. The first S is for spirit. The first S is for the spirit of the workplace, but it is also the spirit inside each of us, inside of you and inside of me and inside of them. Okay? But the first S is for spirit. So how do you operationalize that? How do you act in order to make the training room safe? Well, we have several techniques. I'm going to talk about two now. I may have time to go into the third, which relates to Supervisors. The two techniques that we learn and we train with trainers is normalizing activity. We normalize the room. And as part of that, but separately, number two is we ask people to talk amongst themselves. 
Normalizing the room means not to just warm things up and put people at their ease, kind of get them in a party mood. It's not exactly an icebreaker. It is actually to establish that everyone is on equal footing. And that means to make it easy for every single person in that room to have something to do or say without fear of ridicule, mistakes, or failure. You set this situation up. You ask a question on which everyone will succeed. For example, you could simply say at the beginning of the session, say it's the second or third session, okay, everyone, what visual devices did you see on your way to work today? Then you let people talk amongst themselves. This is technique two. Talk with one other person, not the whole table, but one other person. I'd like you to talk in pairs. If you're at a table of five, then do a threesies, but twosies, wherever possible. Twosies, twosies, and if you have to, a threesies. And they get used to that language, and it's fine. This takes about seven or ten minutes at the most. And you let people talk amongst themselves and find the words to answer the question, what visual devices did you see on the way to work today? First, people will just stare in the opposite direction. They won't even say hello to each other. I usually say, hey, and say good morning, be nice. Say good morning, introduce yourself. And people will get used to being sitting alongside of someone who has an expectation And that other person will get used to sitting alongside of you. And you have an expectation. You all have work to do. And that is to answer the question, what visual devices did you see? And we always, always give an example. So you let people work for a minute or so and say, hey, anybody got an example of what we're talking about? I'll just take one. And they'll say something like, oh, I saw this road that was closed off and there was yellow tape to keep us from from, uh, going into that part of the road. Excellent. Thank you. That's a wonderful visual device. Wonderful visual device. Keep going. Nope, no more. We'll take some more in a little while, but George is completely correct. So we're normalizing the room. That is what we are doing is quite literally establishing flow. But instead of the flow being between me and the participants, other people in the room, the students, the attendees, the teams, the people from work areas, The flow is between one person and another, one operator and another. There's a microflow, and the microflow happens by just one person turning to another. And we often say this. If you want to say, if you want to say something to get the ball ball rolling, you could say something like, What? (laughs) What does she want? One of you say that and you'll see what happens next. Why is she bothering me? What does she mean? Okay, And the, this little microflow happens, and I want it to happen. That is why I am normalizing the room. I am making it possible for people who rarely talk and rarely answer questions in a group setting to hear their voice. I want them to hear the, their own voice. I want to hear the, them to hear the voice of the other person. I want them to have ch- a chance to think and to put sentences together. So that in five or six or seven minutes when I say, okay, what do you got for me? And I'll say something like, we're going to go round robin. Whoever volunteers first will be 12 o'clock. 
And then we're just going to go around the clock and ask the group. And I usually say, I'm only going to take five sets of answers. Not absolutely everyone, but if you want for sure to get your answers, I'm sorry, I'm actually mixing that up. Let me just stop and say to you, round robin, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is say, okay, I'm going to take five answers just to lift the pressure and also to give people a chance to strain uh, their arms out of their sockets if they really have something important to, to say, I just want the flow to happen. I know that until the flow happens, I cannot teach because the people in the room are not ready to learn. They haven't relaxed enough, become in, come into the room, been present sufficiently to be able to hear. Not until they connect on this micro flow can I build a macro flow in relationship to me and the learning. And only after that macro flow can learning begin because that's when the teaching begins. Okay, so that's very, very important to make the room psychologically safe. Now, in each of our modules of work that makes sense, they each begin with a normalizing exercise because it's hard for young trainers or any trainers to come up with an effective normalizing exercise, bingo, just like that. So we started about three years ago to build them in because we saw people struggling too much to come up with innovative innovative uh, normalizing exercises. And I said, no, oh, heck with this. I'm going to just construct it. And they're really, really cool. And as we go through the chapters, I will, um, I will tell you what the normalizing exercise is. It doesn't show up in the book, but it does show up in the training modules. By the way, did I tell you that the Shingo Prize is about to um, launch their offering of the work that makes sense sweet. I'm so thrilled, just so thrilled. It's very, very good. But the normalizing exercise, for example, for module one is something called let's go for a ride. And it, I set up this scenario. I say, my mom has invited you to her 93rd birthday party. She's going to pay all your expenses. You have to fly into Newark and you have to drive down to her house in Long Branch, New Jersey. And she'll pay for everything, including your rented car. What kind of car do you want? And I get them started on that. What kind of car? Do you, and somebody says a Porsche. Great. Mercedes. Great. Um, a Ford. Oh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's got lights going across the top and big fat wheels. It's like a, a Bronco or something like that. Anyway, people choose their cars. And I say, oh, by the way, my mother has one rule. One rule, and she's going to pay for everything. You're going to have such a great time at the party. The rule is once you get out of the airport or if you take the train, once you leave that terminal, you can't ask any questions. You're going to have to find your way to her house through some other means. What other means would that be? And together they come upon, this is just setting up the normalizing exercise. Oh, visual devices, visual devices, let's find them. So, find yourself a buddy, come up with visual devices. What's going to help you get to my mother's house? Here's her address, by the way. And they'll start by saying the map. This is in the debrief. 
Hey, what do you got there? Anybody think of a visual device? A map. Great visual device. A map. You're going to need something more than a map, but the map is a good way to do it. And by the way, did I say, no, you can't use a GPS, and no, you can't ask a cop, and no, you can't hire a taxi to lead the way to my mother's house. All those clever things have been tried before, and when my mother finds out about them, she is not happy. Okay? (laughs) And so we get started. That's a normalizing exercise. It's a little bit longer the first time because we want to have a good, rich experience of flow, and then off we go. It can take six or seven minutes. It can take 15. And you can always expect a long silence the first time you do this. And your metal will be tested by not backing off. You have to stay with the exercise. You have to mean it. You have to mean it. It's okay, guys. I want you to just talk amongst yourselves. And if you want to turn to your neighbor and just say, what is she talking about? You got that? What is she talking about? You have to say it with an accent. Okay? There'll be pushback. It doesn't feel quite safe. It feels as though you're asking people to go out on a limb and they are, they are certain there is no limb. But you are certain that there is. And as they walk forward onto this limb that is there, you will see the individuals and eventually the group not just gain confidence, but gain ease and then get rambunctious. They'll skip feeling afraid, ashamed, embarrassed. They will simply contribute. They'll contribute. We do this religiously. I never start any session, whether it's with a CEO, with operators, whether I'm there to sell or I'm there to teach without doing a normalizing exercise. It's a waste of time. It's too hard for me to handle. I'm going to fail without it. And as people relax, they begin to express themselves, to explore thinking, to come up with ideas. They will even come up with minority reports, with ideas that nobody else is interested in. And we support that as well. The thinking begins. It is contagious. Person by person, you have made the work environment safe. People will take a chance and they will love it. This is a mighty outcome. That's principle four. Make the training room safe, physically and psychologically. So powerful. Principle five. I'm not sure I'm going to get to principle six, but it'll tie in to this safe psychological environment. Principle five is get and keep your supervisors on board. The work that makes sense process focuses squarely on associates on the value-add level. But your supervisors are indispensable to the success of the conversion, the visual conversion. So it's vital that you get and keep them on board. Okay, this will not be as critical if your company has already trained its supervisors to serve as coaches or if you, your company is already um, the beneficiary of high-performance or self-directed work teams, if they're already in place. It will be critical if your company is in the process of making that transition from a traditional command and control to a more 
aligned and empowered approach. When so here here's one of the things that we require. When we train supervisors from the targeted areas, those areas we picked on the laminated map are required to attend all the training sessions. Not only that, but we strongly recommend that every manager and supervisor in the company watch the full training system online. And most of the training nowadays is done through the online modules, these 12 modules and then three for management. Because it's a really, really good way for trainers to be successful and to get them up on their feet faster than watching me go through an entire cycle. But I love training on site, and I I love training trainers and working with them as they go through their cycles. But it's economically uh, challenging, and most companies want to jump to self-sufficiency. So we do something called long-distance coaching. We stay in touch with trainers who are going through the process, and that's also very, very helpful. Not going to talk too much about that now. We want everyone to understand what the change is. I'm just going to slide into principle six and then pick it up the next time because we just have a few minutes left. Principle six is while they're in the training room, supervisors keep a low profile. They are not asked to manage the process. I want to go into this in some depth because it will be to some of you an unusual notion And yet, we have found it to be absolutely indispensable with the focus on the operator, with the focus on the operator finding his or her voice, his or her thinking, his or her inventions. We don't want and we don't need supervisors supervising. They will get a much more capable a group of operators and value-add associates if the growing happens in the classroom. Mm, kind of want to get into this, but I'm pretty sure I'm out of time. So what we did today is we went through the eight principles of setting up the physical room, and they're very, very clear. Enough space, good layout, good equipment, fresh air, dark enough, nice refreshments. I might have missed one or two of them. (sighs) Did I? Did I? Ah, I'm swimming in paper here. And then the nine principles of creating a work environment that's effective for learning. And they began with Principle one, inspire first, then inform. Principle two, start small, train a a small group to begin with, make your mistakes, and then you can grow the size of the group. Principle three, everyone gets trained, everyone, everyone, everyone. Principle four, make the training room safe, physically safe and psychologically safe. Principle five, get and keep your supervisors on board. And we just began to touch principle six, which is supervisors keep a low profile and they will be very, very glad they did. 
And what we're talking about in broad strokes is I'm about to get into the part of the work that makes sense methodology where the change is real, where people are going to be learning during the training session a new way of thinking. They'll be doing hands-on exercises that are completely pivotal to the next step. These are not entertainments. They are thinking processes to begin with with smart placement to relay to relay out the flow of function within the work area. And so that training, what the trainer does, is incredibly important, and it can be learned. It's specific. We're building skill. We're also building understanding. There's an arc to every training session, and that arc begins with the normalizing exercise, and then at various points along the way, we check for understanding and do a number of other things. So thank you very much. I hope this is useful to you. I look forward to the next time when we will continue the revelation of how at least I train and teach trainers to train work that makes sense. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.